What's up, everyone? I'm Jeff St. Pierre, host of the Adult Education Podcast. This is episode 68, and joining me today is one-third of new country group, the Chattahoochees. Her name is Audra May. Before we get started, I just want to take a second to thank you for checking out my podcast. Also, I'd like to thank Jason Reeves for producing the music that you're hearing right now under this conversation. Adult Education was formerly known as Be More Well, so if you're looking for Be More Well, you are in the right place. Don't go anywhere. If you missed why I changed the name, you can check out episode 60 for more on that. But just thank you for taking time out of your day to listen. I hope you're able to find some new information, some knowledge, and maybe some inspiration each week from my guests. I'd really appreciate it if you subscribe to the show so you'll be notified of all future episodes. And if you have a minute, it'd be very helpful if you could leave a rating and review so the podcasting gods know what you think of adult education. That really helps them to push the show out to new listeners. And we're on social media. I do most of my work on Instagram at Adult Education Podcast. Now, this episode is part two of my four-part series on new country group, The Chattahoochees. Part one was episode 67, where I spoke with Nellie Joy. If you missed that one, take a listen when you get a chance. This week, I'm catching up with Audra May. She is, hands down, one of the best vocalists that I have ever heard in my life. This woman can sing her ass off, and I'm so excited to hear more from The Chattahoochees with her. Audra, over the last decade, has put out three full-length albums and an EP, and she's been featured on songs with artists like Flo Rida, Avicii, and the All-American Rejects, and she's written songs for people like Christina Aguilera, Miranda Lambert, Kelly Clarkson, Celine Dion, and more, and we're talking about hits. I think she wrote Little Red Wagon for Miranda Lambert. She wrote Heartbreak Song for Kelly Clarkson. This woman has got an insane resume. I'm so excited to share her story with you today. Now, before we jump into the conversation, just a quick reminder to subscribe to the Adult Education Podcast so you'll be notified of all future episodes of the show. And please leave a rating and review. Well, hello there. Hi, can you hear me? I can. How's it going? Yeah, all right. (laughs) How are you doing? I am doing great. How are you? Can't complain. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. Thank you for doing this, by the way. Yeah, absolutely. I have been searching through my house since I started talking to Nellie about this because I know that I have a copy of your debut album in here, and I'm pretty sure it's like a pre-release edit from Side One Dummy, and I'm like, I don't know. I know I have it, but I have no idea where. Oh, my God. If you ever sign it, if we ever meet in person, or if you ever find it and we ever meet in person, I will totally sign it. That's so cool. <laughs> I used to do a lot of work with them. I'm, I'm a big, I actually kind of grew up in music in the punk rock scene. So uh, when you were coming onto the scene, you were touring with guys that I've known for many years, like Chuck Reagan, not known personally, but been a fan of, but artists like Chuck Reagan, Kevin Seconds, like all these guys, because this sort of like, I don't even know if I would call it alt country, but this sort of like folk movement went through the punk rock scene for a few years. And it was so cool and refreshing and then we got artists like yourself that kind of joined into the fun as well and it was a really cool moment I thought I coming from Oklahoma always was about folk music and you know the 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 lore and the legends of like Bob Dylan coming down just to find Woody Guthrie and he didn't even really know like how to find him but found him and Woody Guthrie being like yeah hang out for a while like let's chat <laughs> going back to New York and and blowing everybody away like so getting to do stuff with Chuck and that whole revival tour there was also like it was folk but there was also like a sort of cool like religious but like 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 the ghost of religion was in it it wasn't religious but it was like nostalgic for the good parts of memories that everyone had had when they were maybe even when their grandparents were growing up in the church, like something had been passed down the idea of people getting together and, you know, I don't know. I don't know how to put it because it wasn't religious, but everything in it was like felt like church. Yeah. There was an experience yeah. to it. I remember interviewing Chuck about it when he first started doing it. And that was, a, he said a very similar thing. I can't remember the exact words, but I remember him saying something like that. And it was more, it was an experience. It wasn't just, we're going to go to the show and we're going to see some people play music. You just kind of felt something different at those tours. Yeah. It tapped into, I think everybody feels this way about something, but it tapped into a huge part of music fans, especially at that time, who felt like they'd been left behind or like like music wasn't good anymore or something. It, it was like that spot right before Spotify came in. I mean, people really thought 
that good music had died. So there was like, people felt when they went to those shows, like, like something was being revived. I mean, it was really appropriate that he called it the revival tour. Cause yeah. that's I remember a lot of people being surprised that you would have artists like Chuck that would go from his band Hot Water Music and then start doing this more folky vibe. But I still maintain that Johnny Cash was the first punk rocker in the world. You know, I mean, I know everybody talks about the Ramones and the Sex Pistols, but I swear Johnny Cash was the first one because he was just like, F you to everybody. I'm doing what I want to do. And it worked out for him in the end, you know? <laughs> yeah, it worked out for him. And it took him like almost 80 years. To get, I mean, what a legacy! Yeah. If you if you if you take Johnny Cash before the last ten years of his life, it's not Johnny Cash. Somehow, it's like that. The end of his life gave everything the most beautiful depth and meaning and context to the point where, like, I remember people talking about Johnny Cash when I left Oklahoma when I was like eighteen, nineteen. I didn't get it. Like, I wasn't. I was trying to be everything but a kid from Oklahoma. It wasn't until later, way later, that I got into Johnny Cash. But I had friends that were super into him, and that was, like, their way of being obscure. <laughs> no, I think <laughs> you you're know? you're dead on on that. And I think, you know, for a lot of people, it was when he worked with Rick Rubin there at the end and just did all – like, that cover of the Nine Inch Nails song, Hurt. I mean, when I hear that song that he did, I mean, I, I cry. I mean, I burst into <laughs> tears. It is so heartbreaking. <laughs> yes, it is. And the video for it, yes. too. Like, that was such a magic match match of visual and and audio that was gorgeous wow i know that i knew your name and i had to do some research just to dig in a little bit further to know like okay how, why do i know more about audra that's when i found the side one dummy connection i was like oh that's right but i there's so much about you like for example you wrote a song on the susan boyle album which was the only original song on the album and, and look i don't want to talk about money but that album sold 9 million copies. Like, how did that feel for you to watch those sales just like go? You're like, oh my gosh, I have a song on this record. <laughs> I mean, it was a good lesson and I've never really paid attention to stuff like that. I still don't pay as much attention to stuff like that as I could. But I think part of it scares me. Like, I don't trust myself with that information. <laughs> it's kind of like the stock market. I don't need to be watching the stock market. That is not... I'm neurotic as fuck, and so I don't need to watch the billboard charts ever or sales or anything. But, um, I mean, I had had a couple of publishing deals with my publishing company at that point that I hadn't recouped. So I was mostly excited money-wise that I might have a chance at recouping. Right. But that didn't happen. <laughs> so, it, but it was like, so it was a cool lesson on, like, all right, this is how things break down. I mean, that was kind of like the last big, what the hell, uh, come out of nowhere, record-breaking sales thing before the ushering in of the new way. And I thought it was really beautiful because she, Susan Boyle, was this, and is, she's still alive, but she just was this woman who was, she symbolized all of the things that we fight about now in one lady, like she has Asperger's, she was over 40, she was not married, she was, you know, taking care of her parents. And I felt like all the songs on her album were covers and she became famous because people heard her sing other people's songs, but like she just, to me, is, was the coolest diva of all time. Like, this thing happened to her because it was her mother's dying wish that she go on this show. And and everyone made fun of her. The second they saw her, everyone was like, I mean, it was awful. It like gave me the same feeling I get when I watch any movie about where there's like crowds of people, you know, they weren't literally spitting on her. But it felt almost like gross and medieval in that way. And then she opened her mouth and because she could entertain them, everyone was like, oh, wow, we love you. And then they gave her the big makeover. And, you know, it was like the whole Hollywood thing. And I just felt like she deserved to have a song like all the divas have, which is their song that nobody else has ever sung before. That is about them that someone wrote for them. And I'm amazed that that, that song ever even made it on the record because they that whole label was like, no, nah, not going to happen. So. There's something to be said for when you like really sincerely want to give somebody something, some goodness comes along can sometimes can help you out because nobody knew who I was. It's not like I like, called someone. It was like, I want to 
help this lady feel like she's made her mark, you know? And it's funny, you know, after it came out, especially after all those record-breaking sales, you know, I got a lot of flack because I wouldn't release my own version of it because it felt like, are we trying to one-up this lady? Right, like it's <laughs> like, her song at this point, right? Yeah. Her song. Someday I'll sing it. Someday I'll, sure. someday. It's beautiful. I love it. But, but, uh, but it just felt like weird. Like why be like, but anyway, they, people were not very happy with me about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, that was in their minds a missed opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> I I always find songwriters to be so interesting, especially when there are people that are artists and they're also songwriters. There are a lot of folks that write an amazing song but couldn't carry a tune to save their life if they had to sing. But then we have folks like you that have incredible voices, have great stage presence, but also just have this great talent for writing. And looking through your you know, list of people you've worked with, I mean, it, it runs the gambit. I mean, from All-American Rejects to Avicii to Flo Rida to Kelly Clarkson. I mean, you've got all these different people. Is there, when you sit down to write a song, do you write a song with a genre or an artist in mind? Or you just say, I'm sitting down to write today and then we'll see where it goes. It depends. You know, sometimes... It's nice when you when you feel like, oh, I'm going to sit down today. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write a song. You know, most of the time you're just running around trying to write as many times a week, especially in the beginning with other people as you can, because then you never have writer's block because you're collaborating with other people and you're learning so much so quickly about like how to write in different ways, in ways that are different from the way that you would. And you also learn like how to not be an asshole. I mean, you just, there's a lot that you learn so fast and it all happens so quickly. It's such a whirlwind. And when you're in the middle of doing it, it feels like it's going to take forever, but, but it really happens quick. And it's just because you're always like, you got to get up, you got to go write a song with people you've never met. And it's amazing how on your way there, you're thinking, really, we're going to pull another fucking song out of the air, out of the air. How are we going to do this? And at the end of the day, most of the time you end up with something. So you just keep doing it. But, you know, day by day, they all start to kind of blur together. And sometimes you go in and it's for, you know, someone is looking for a song and you're trying to hit a bullseye because you want to write a song for a specific person. It's really hard to do that and have it hit that bullseye unless the artist is in the room with you. And even then it's still, you know, difficult. Most of the time, I mean, the Avicii stuff was just because I was there with him. The flow writer song I was randomly just like at the, uh, that company that day and they asked me to sing a hook on a thing some of them you really feel like you're writing and some of them you're just jumping in because you're the kid that can sing pretty well and you know that you might have a chance at it sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't but it's different every time sorry can you hear my dog being a drug <laughs> that's okay I've got one sleeping on my feet right now so I, I hear you it's all good he's the best <laughs> when I start timing, it's like I think because she can't smell the other person, she thinks I'm like trying to tell her something. She's like, I'm right here. Like you're looking over there and I'm here anyway. I've got an Sorry. 11 month old daughter. She actually just turned 11 months today. Um, and she's gotten wow. very used to these calls because she's done so many with me since she was born, but she's still like, she sees and hears the talking. She's like, well, I want to be a part of this. So there's little noises and she'll grab the microphone and shake it around all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I feel I your pain. <laughs> oh, I love that. I think that's so great. Um, so let's take it back a little bit, if you don't mind, because um, one thing that I found interesting when I talked to Nelly. So I, let me start with this, actually. I'm assuming she told you a little bit about what I'm doing here. I want to speak to all three of the Chattahoochees because I love what you're doing. Yes. And I want to hear a little bit about all three of you. And then I think she said we're going to try to wrangle all three of you together to do one last conversation as a group. Sure. And I already spoke to Nelly. So it's your, you're up here. You're part number two here. Um, and, and Nelly didn't start really writing music or really even thinking about music until she was like 17 years old, which to me is pretty late for an artist. Most artists I feel like have some sort of like singing background or some sort of performing background. And I, I wonder with you, did it start earlier for you? I grew up in music theater. So I was around music a lot. And there's music in my family on both sides of my family. So I was around it a lot, but I didn't start writing until I turned 17. I wanted a guitar 
my mom would let me have one. My friends went behind her back and got me one. And so I just, the second I started learning chords um, and, you know, downloading tabs off the internet so I could learn other people's songs, immediately songs started coming out of me. So I, same, 17 was when I really kind of started actually going, let me write a song. I used to sing, sing song all day of like whatever I was doing, like narrating my life, but singing it and it would annoy the hell out of my mom. But, but, uh, I made a whole career out of that. So, <laughs> you know. Well, you've got some Judy Garland lineage in your life, too. So I'm not surprised to hear that music has been a part of your family in a lot of different ways. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of just in my, I can't imagine not to. It's like, I know this sounds really corny and dramatic, but I don't fucking care. I don't have to will the music any more than I have to will my heart to be. It is such a part of me. I can't, I cannot walk across a room without hearing the rhythm of it or hearing like I mean I singing I know people are that people that will listen to this will know what I'm talking about like if you are one of those people who can hear the note that your refrigerator is humming and the note that the dryer is doing and you're singing the third and playing around with that third and that you are my people I see you and we're <laughs> we're gonna make it in this world <laughs> I assume other people in my family have been that way as well. Oh, sure. I'm sure. I feel like I missed the boat on becoming a percussionist. Like when I was a kid, my dad uh, is deaf. So when I was growing up, he loved music, but he could only listen to music that had heavy beats, like real good cool. bass and real good drums. So he loved bands like Chicago or Black Sabbath because they were like, they had that good bass and good beat to it. So I would always play the drums in the car, like with the music that he played. Like I was notorious for the uh, air drums of Phil Collins in the air tonight when I was a kid. Like we would do that in the car all the time. <laughs> my dad loved Miami Vice like every other adult male in the 80s. Um, but I, I feel like I missed that chance because I didn't do it. I mean, not, I mean, look, I could still learn to play now, but I wish I had learned when I was a kid and, and been going through because I love just like playing with the beat on things as it goes through. Because I couldn't tell you a note to save my life, but I could like play along with a song, you know, on my desk. Yeah. So what was the first stop for you? So you're Oklahoma, you're writing music there. You start to figure out you've got a passion for it. Where do you go from there? Yeah, I I started writing music and all the music theater stuff. Like every time I would pick up a script or someone else's idea, like I would, my whole body would get tired. Like I couldn't, it was like I couldn't do other people's ideas all of a sudden. So I, a friend of mine told me about this college outside of Nashville called MTSU. Um, and I thought, okay, well, you know, maybe I can like be a producer. I'll go like record other people's music. I still didn't know I was a songwriter. I was writing songs all the time. I had no idea. So I went there. Um, I flunked out because all I did was write songs. I flunked out two semesters in a row. Two, because they had these cool practice rooms in the music building there where you go in, it's soundproof. They have a piano and you push a keypad on the wall. You push these buttons and it'll say like cathedral or cabaret or um, uh, like arena. And it makes you sound like that's where you are. Like there's microphones and speakers in the wall. So you could go in there. I would go in there at like 11 o'clock in the morning and be there till six o'clock at night and not even know because I could close my eyes and sound like I was in an arena. So I was like, oh, I was not at college. I was at college. I was not there. They can't, They were like, you have to leave now. We don't care that you paid for all your rent. So that's when I moved to LA and uh, was there for 13 years. And I loved it. It was great. But I would come to Nashville for work and to write. And every time I would leave, I'd get sadder and sadder. It was like, like, I loved LA so much. Uh, it was so good to me. I loved California, but I fell for Nashville hard. And I was like, bye. <laughs> I got to go. Yeah. Just felt a lot more like home all of a sudden. Little bits over time, really. But in the end. So, but yeah, while I was out in LA, I did a bunch of, made a bunch of records and yeah. wrote a bunch of songs and, and, uh, and then came out here and really enjoyed the fact that I could spend whatever money I wasn't spending on my cost of living, making music without a label, <laughs> which was very exciting. So I made it, I did a couple albums that I had a great time doing. I mean, I, they're so great and I'm really proud of them and I'm so glad I did it. 
I'm so glad. I mean, I, it's amazing how many people have that mental block of like, I need someone else's permission before I can do this, or I can't do this if nobody else is signing on to do it. Or if it's just my money, that's a bad investment. Like, fuck it. Does a painter give a fuck? <laughs> well, I mean, you, are you going to paint or are you going to paint? Yeah. You can't, you can't, I couldn't, like, it just got to the point where I was like, I cannot sit in one more room with a bunch of people and go, is it okay with you guys if I make some art? Like, I can't. So it's been the best move ever. And do you think part of what's, you know, been kind of giving you that opportunity is, I know people have like love-hate relationships with streaming, but I do think that one thing that streaming has done is it has allowed artists, maybe such as yourself, to release music and get it out to people a little bit, quote unquote, easier that, you know, without a record label, that you can self-produce and self-release a little bit easier. Um, right. I, I mean, I'd be curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I mean, and you, you're reaching, I mean, you're casting such a wide net. I, when I first started, you had to print CDs, you had to like burn CDs, right. oh my God. And it took as long as, however long it took per CD. I mean, you'd be up all night and you got to print the artwork out and you got to do the thing. This shit now, <laughs> you just go on whatever service you need like two weeks Matt, like i mean they'll put it out in a week sometimes you go on you upload your shit you take a picture of yourself with your phone eh, stick it on the thing as long as it's the right dimension oh you don't know how to make the right dimension you go how do i make the right fucking dimension <laughs> it tells you 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 know I know so many people who, who are annoyed that they spent any money learning how to do any of this shit because it doesn't matter all of a sudden anymore. It's like you go into studios and you see these big old mixing boards that are too big to move yeah. and no one knows how to use them because you don't need them anymore. So they're just these big dinosaurs that you put your laptop on top of. And like when you find someone who knows how to use them and can run the shit and how amazing shit sounds through it, it's incredible. But you don't need it. I mean, it sounds better if you have it sometimes and the technology gets so good. You're like, can you tell the difference? I don't know. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's definitely been a change. I remember in high school and I graduated high school in 99 to just to put a perspective on years going to the studio with my friends that were in like, you know, little metal bands they were doing for fun and they would be able to afford like six hours in a recording studio with some guy that couldn't yeah. give a shit that they were there, but he's going to hit record yeah. and let them play. But just being in that room and like looking at the gigantic soundboard, I'd be like, Oh my God, this is amazing. Like this is what people do. And I got a chance to visit yeah. Capitol records, the building there in LA once and, and go downstairs and wow. see the record studios and stuff there. I'm like, oh, this is so fascinating. But you're right. Like there are people that are doing stuff that sounds almost as good, you know, to the, to the average year sounds just as good. And it's the in their basement. Yeah. You could not tell the difference. It, you might as well be in wine country. Like, you know, every next sip of wine, yeah. really think, you know, the difference between what's good and what isn't. But three sips in, your are, your judgment is impaired. Yeah. I can, I can you feel the oakiness. I taste the oak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This one has notes of plum. Like, no, it's Valhalla. Did someone just slap their reverb on it? It sounds awesome. No, you know, music is about, it's supposed to be made for people who don't make music. People get so caught up in it, right? It's like, you're supposed to play music, not work it. Music is for people who like music. Does it sound awesome? Does it make you feel like a million bucks? Does it make you feel something? Great. And that's scary for a lot of people because there were so many big complicated machines that if you didn't know how to use that, you, you didn't have access. You couldn't get your thing done. You couldn't get your idea out. Now you can. So, I mean, they're screwing writers left and right, of course. Sure. Well, that's how it always works, right? You used to make a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of money just for playing drums three times a day yeah a lot of money like crazy amounts of money that was a big wave and a lot of people got a lot of benefit from it and it sucks that that people can't do that as much anymore yeah that's a bummer but shit changes man like damn that was that was like a free-for-all like people were making so much money doing the thing that comes the easiest to them and they get annoyed when they don't get to do that anymore like that Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's unfortunate for them, but you're right. Things change. You can either be mad about it and just live your life in this sense of anger, or you can move on and try yeah, to figure out something pissed. else. I would be so pissed if I hadn't thought of a different, like, what if this goes away someday? Right. I'd be so pissed. Like, what do you do? You, everyone's used to that lifestyle now, your wife, your kids, everybody's used to it. And you're supposed to explain to them that you can do it on a computer now. And it doesn't, you know, what do you do? 
I'd be pissed. Well, we got uh, we got off on a tangent there, which I'm okay with because I love hearing your thoughts about stuff like this. But can we? I want to back up to your first <laughs> releases because I'm assuming the 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 haunt EP and the happiest lamb like those happened when you were out in LA, right? Yeah, on side one dummy. Yeah. So tell me how that whole thing came together. You're, I mean, you you went out to Los Angeles to write. I mean, did you have did you have goals to be a performer as well, or were you just thinking, I'm moving to L.A., I want to write? I just went out there because I couldn't live in Murfreesboro anymore because they kicked me out, and I didn't want to go back to Oklahoma, and L.A. was a place where people didn't think you were weird for being yourself, so I was like, great. So went out there and started, I, you know, I just was still writing and did, like, open mics, and one of the open mics that I did you know, I got a show through that and then people started coming to my shows and then a rep from a publishing company came to one of my shows and and was like, have you ever thought about writing for other people? And my friends at the time, not all of them, but a lot of them, the musician friends were like, you don't sell out, man, you're gonna sell out. <laughs> you know, you're gonna put all your songs on a shelf. And I was like, that doesn't make a lot of business sense, but maybe they will, but we just didn't see the same path forward. So uh, I gave it a try just because what if it worked and it fucking worked. So, but it took me a long time. Yeah. So did a lot of that. Um, again, like people would always come to the shows and be like, I know a manager you need to meet or whatever. Sure. So I met with this manager and he was friends with one of the guys at side one dummy. And so that deal worked out through that. And that's, also, one of the guys at Side One Dummy had been friends for a long time and had signed uh, Chuck Reagan over there. So then, you know, that's how I got to go on the road with him and do the revival tour and stuff. So, you know, all that stuff was like 2009 till 2012, maybe 2013. And those guys were great. Um, everything was, it was a fun time. It was a fun, like nostalgic time, but, you know, Looking back on it now, I, I can see how I just have this. I had this my whole 20s and into my 30s. I had this like this reputation for like being difficult or something. And now I look back and I'm like, oh, no, I just like didn't want to do weird shit. Like <laughs> now the way that, you know, all I think a lot of women can say that about now, like looking back, it's like, damn, there was a lot of stuff that that wasn't cool, you know, that that went down that I kind of got the the brunt of or the blame for because people could get away with it back then. So there's no bad blood or anything like that because I get it. Like people don't know any better, but damn, it was really kind of tough to when the almighty sound came out, which was the last album I did over there. Yeah, I, I was so in love with it. I thought it was so great. And I couldn't figure out why nobody wanted to like push it anywhere or like my management didn't think it was good enough or they didn't think the way I recorded it was right or whatever. And I, so I didn't listen to it for years. I thought I had done something wrong. Years later, I went and listened to it. And I, I was like, this album's perfect. It's great. It's, it inspired a lot of people in Nashville. I didn't live here at the time, but it inspired a lot of music. So anyway, that whole experience while it was very educational and I was really grateful for the opportunity to do a lot of those things. It was really heartbreaking and I had a lot that I had to kind of figure out and heal from. So I didn't put music out for a long time. It wasn't until 2018 that I finally put out another album. And that that was one that I did myself with my friend Todd. I, it was like a, a great way to prove to myself that I could make that I could do the music making part just fine. You know, <laughs> I can't do the label running part. Great. But I can do the music making part. And I, I trust myself a lot now, a lot more now because of that whole thing. Does that bring us up to speed? Did I get on another tangent? No, no, I think we're good. But I do want to go back to yeah. how you felt about the almighty sound. And, you know, I, I, there's another band that I know that had a similar situation with a, a major label that they got signed to. They were an underground sort of like hardcore metal band, a band called Caven. They got signed to RCA to give it give it a shot, and they put out their most commercial record of their career, which, you know, I think a lot of their fans who had grown up with them as this, like, metal band were kind of like, what is this sound? But it's still, if you listen to it now, it's a great record, a great rock record. But they would talk about in interviews now how they were on RCA and they were on tour with the Foo Fighters, but no one on that label could have given a shit about them. And even though they felt they put together a really great record that deserves some ears and realistically 
probably should have been heard by some more radio stations and some more people. There was no one coming to shows to represent them. There was no one inviting radio people out to hear what they were doing. There was no, like, and they just felt like, like, man, we just got fucked by our record label. Like they signed us, but they don't care. Like they don't want to do anything with us. And hearing you talk about the almighty sound, it kind of reminds me of their story too, where it's like, you feel like you've put so much into this. Why doesn't anybody else want to be a part of this the way that I do? Yeah, I felt like they cared about it. But I felt like they had me on such a pedestal. They were such, like, they thought I was so great in their way, in their mind, the way they thought I should be. It wasn't that they didn't care about me. It was like some sort of, like, unattainable <laughs> thing for me to, I was over here like, here's how I feel about things. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and they were, like, trying to get me to some place that they couldn't even fully visualize themselves. It was just like, here's this kid with all this talent. She's got this, she's got that, she's got the other thing. Maybe we'll just throw her at the wall and she'll stick to it. We think she's great, you know, but other people in the industry coming around, especially at that time, like you got this 27 year old chick who is just like, yeah, fuck it, let's go. <laughs> You know, like that works if the person is of the mindset of like, I'm will, I will do whatever it takes to get to the top. And I'm not that person. Yeah. I will not do whatever it takes if that means stuff that's not cool. Sure. Like I'm not doing so I said no to things like, you know, recording a my version of a Susan Boyle song. Right. Because didn't feel right to me. So I think that was frustrating for people. It wasn't that they didn't believe in me. It was that it, it was like they thought I didn't want it enough or something. Mm, okay, that's interesting. That's interesting. I, I appreciate, though, that you stood up for yourself and stood up for what you wanted. You know, even if maybe you look back on it and you see you have different feelings now that some years have gone by, I appreciate that at the time you said, no, no, this is where I'm at. This is what because I think there are a lot of people that will just do whatever, and then they look back with regrets and say, oh, man, I really wish I hadn't done anything to get what I, you know what I mean? Like I, so I, I do kind yeah. of appreciate that you did stand up for yourself. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, I, I don't feel good about doing stuff just for attention. It doesn't feel right to me. Yeah. That's why I'm so excited about the Chattahoochee's stuff because the whole thing has been nothing but absolutely genuine, like goodness. And really like, we just like hanging out with each other and making jokes and writing songs about it. And you either laugh or cry when you hear our stuff. I mean, the, it resonates with everyone and it, that feels so good to me. When I see that and I feel this feeling, I think if I back then had done whatever it takes, I would have had such a different life. I'd be one of those women who thinks that I can't trust other women. Yeah. I would think, I would think, you know, people were out to get me or people wanted something from me or I wouldn't know, I wouldn't have social skills. Mm. I wouldn't know how to move in the world at the grocery store if I had done, you know, what it, everything it took to get, to be world famous at 25, mm. you know, I, like I wouldn't be able to do this. I wouldn't be able to make a record with people that I love and do whatever we want. I'm curious about this because uh, Nellie was telling me about when her duo, the Jane Deere girls broke up. That when that was over, she, you know, had some health complications that she had to work through, but she kind of felt like performing maybe in her past. She kind of felt like maybe her life was going to be more about songwriting and working with artists and trying to help people grow and that getting on the stage and performing was behind her. And it wasn't until really Gone West came together where she was like, wow, I really missed this. So I wonder for you, you know, you it, we had a six year gap between albums there. I wonder, did you have a similar feeling? Did you just say, I'm going to bury myself in writing? Or were you always like, I, I need to be on a stage. I need to get out there. I need to get my voice heard. I definitely am a nicer person when I've been performing. Like it <laughs> is, it's, you know what I mean? Like it's a thing in me. <laughs> it's almost like when you're hungry and you're grumpy. It's like that. I get hungry for, for being on stage. I was performing. I just wasn't performing my albums. I was doing like cool, weird, experimental theater and and writing a lot for other people and seeing, you know, falling in love with being in the writer's room with writers and inspiring them and seeing them light up and get excited. And then the song makes it onto the record. And then like, you feel like who you are is a part of what you're doing. 
and that has that. So, you know, I was doing a lot of getting in the studio and being there till three o'clock in the morning and, you know, being all armchair expert about shit and just trying to pump people up, gas them up. Uh, so <laughs> that's, I guess, a, a form of performance, really. Oh, sure. trying to get people all excited about who they are. You're like motivational speaking. You got this. That'd be sick. <laughs> so many things. Fuck yeah, you know. <laughs> I love it. I love your energy, by the way. This is so fantastic. I love it. <laughs> the, the album you put out in 2018, had you moved to Nashville when you put out the 18 album? When did you move to Nashville? I made it in LA. I moved to Nashville October of 2017 and then finished it in LA um, at Capitol. We went and in, in the in that big room at Capitol. And, sure. and so then we put it out Valentine's Day of 2018. So it was kind of like, it was made in the summer of 2017 and then released in the, at the end of winter, beginning of spring, 2018 in Nashville. Yeah, so kind of both, but it was recorded in LA. I think a lot of people forget or don't realize because Nashville, you know, just has that, that stigma of country music, which obviously country is huge in Nashville, but I think people forget that it's called Music City for a reason. I mean, there are so many people from all different genres that are there working all the time trying to make things happen. I mean, I, I think of radio tours with uh, country artists coming through uh, where I live in Baltimore to try to introduce themselves, and I'll see their guitar player, and I'm like, I've seen your other band a thousand times because these guys, will they'll move to Nashville and be like, hey, maybe my punk band wasn't going to make it, but now I'm going to go play in front of 20,000 people with this artist, and that's fine with me. I still get to play music for a living and still love life. <laughs> yeah, it's also nice, you know, being on the road, it's romantic when you're younger, but like the older you get, like, you know, it, it gets hard, especially if you have people back home that you love so much. Sure. So getting to play guitar with a band that's got a steady gig and they have families too. So you fit right in and it, it's all good. And you all can like trade war stories and stuff. It's like a, a nice way to, to, I don't know. It's a cool way to grow into yourself as a musician because you're all like, yeah, I remember when we were 20 and fucking eating peanut butter sandwiches and making out with everybody. And it's like, man, I can't do that now, you know? <laughs> It's also interesting too. Like I've I've noticed uh, that country artists, at least the bigger ones, tend to only tour on the weekends. Like their shows are only <laughs> Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and that's it. So you know, a Sunday through Wednesday, they're home with their families, and they hit the road for like three days, and they're back at home for four days. You know, and it's really interesting because other genres. I mean, you'll just hit the road and you'll tour for however many days straight with a couple off days yeah. here and there. But you're playing. Like if it's a Tuesday night, you're playing a show. But country, like for the most part, like they're basically playing weekends and that's it yeah well i mean part of it too is like you schedule you you pick your party you, you'd kind of you know you if you do it enough you figure out how to hit the sweet spot sure you know you're like we're doing this we're not doing that shit anymore we, we can't do it you know or y'all can go do that shit i'm going to take a nap like whatever like you figure it out i'm excited to get back on the road i haven't been on the road in a long time it sounds like the right move i love road trips i drive around a lot sure. just because it's something else to be like it's the coolest feeling in the world to be like man i'm so tired of being on the road right guys <laughs> i know what a and what I'm a like, hard life like yeah <laughs> oh god my bones hurt <laughs> like it is funny when, when i hear guys say that or guys and women that'll say that like oh man my bones hurt i'm like really <laughs> no it's funny because it is grueling i mean if you're touring and you're putting a show on every night that's that is hard work you know but it's just Especially it's funny if you don't have you're carrying your own gear like oh, that yeah. shit wears on you oh sure if you're carrying your own gear you're not in a tour bus <laughs> usually so, so I, I don't know if I'm asking you something that I shouldn't ask you, but when you say you can't wait to get back on the road, are you planning Chattahoochee's dates or are you doing your own thing? The Chattahoochee's are working out all kinds of fun ways to get to get on the road and get people to come to us. Like cool little ideas. It's so much fun working with them. Like, oh my God, I'm, we're all pouring our hearts and souls into it. And it's just like, these little miracles just keep happening one after the other. Boom, 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 boom. We're like, okay, if you bring it to the table, we'll pick it up, you know? 
All right, well, let's, let's jump into the Chattahoochees now because we've delayed this long enough. I, I, I'm excited <laughs> to ask each of you the same question because I always okay. think it's funny to hear people answer the question, you know, see how they answer it differently. So I'm curious for you, okay. how did you get involved with the Chattahoochees? How did this start? The first time we wrote was a year before we ever said the name Chattahoochees. So the first time we wrote was like 2019, October. And then by October 2020, the whole world had eaten its tail. Sure. So, so, but when we first wrote was supposed to just be me and Nellie. Um, and she was like, who's your favorite person to write with in town? And I said, Summer Overstreet. She's the best writer in Nashville. She was like, oh my God, I think so too. Let's text her. We texted her. She was like, oh, my right just canceled out of nowhere. We were like, come over. So we wrote. We wrote a song on our album called Dying Well. And then we kept writing. And then so sometimes it'd be over Zoom or we would sit outside, you know, at Nellie's around the campfire. And it was like medicine. It was like really important at that time because no one had left their houses in months. And it was crazy. And uh, so a year later is when we were sitting around like writing. We wrote a song called Itching for a Bitchin'. <laughs> about like a girl fight in a bar and one called stoned and we were just writing them around the campfire and we kept running inside to sing them for Nellie's husband Jason and we're like crying laughing like, <laughs> like we just I think all three of us have a thing in us that's like that little girl that like wants to make boys uncomfortable just a little bit <laughs> just like a little bit you know what I mean yeah. like we don't do too far but we would kind of like test Jason, like, oh, we said this word or whatever. And every time we would try to push him, he would be like, this is going to be the greatest band of all time. You guys should be an actual band. You know, it was like it never weirded him out. No matter what, he was like, I love what you're doing. I would like for you to take it farther if you would have. <laughs> so we were like, well, what would we even be called? And then we were like, oh, it'd be the Chattahoochee's. Ha, ha, ha. And then a year after that, we finished an album. Like, it's crazy. In two years, we went from just meeting to we finished an album. I didn't realize you guys had finished until I talked to Nelly and she was telling me that it's like done. And I was like, wait, it's done. I mean, and like I follow her and I, you know, we message once in a while. We got to know each other a little bit during the Gone West um, era. And uh, and I was like, wait, how did how did I not know that? Like, this is crazy that you guys already got. I feel like you just emerged. and It's already done. Yes. We came out of a shell in the ocean. We a giant clamshell opened up and we just sort of like stumbled out of it, like half drunk on tequila. Like, hey, we're here for the party. What's up? It's crazy how fast it happened. Something else that's crazy yeah. too is she she told me that you wrote the exact amount of songs that are on the album. Like, and what's, what's weird about that is I was just having dinner with an artist, a new artist that said she wrote 400 songs during the pandemic. And I looked at her and I just said, look, I don't, I'm not trying to sound insulting. So please bear with me. How many of those will you actually take in somewhere to record? Or how many will see like the light of day? And even she was like, I, I don't even know if any of them will. Like we may have to write some more stuff and see. So I, I love the fact that you guys are like, we got 13 songs. We got a 13 song album. I think it's 13. I could be wrong, but. <laughs> well, we, we, we it just kind of happened that way i mean we we figured everything out step by step like moment to moment there was no grand plan you know so that i think is why if you have a big grand plan and you're trying to hit this thing you're going to try and write as many songs as you can you got a bunch of people around you giving you money to do it that's a lot of different opinions and you know rightfully so you've invested in your ideas but we didn't have that we just had how hard can we laugh or cry? Like that was it. So we started like posting when we would get together and record some of these demos. Like we didn't know. We just were, we were just putting dumb videos up of us making each other laugh. And then um, this producer named Mike Elizondo just started commenting on them and being like, I, I want to produce your album. Like, can I? And we were like, I mean, yeah, sure. why would we do that? Why wouldn't we do that? So, but I mean, you're talking about it's like three women in the music industry. All three of us have been through some shit. Yeah. So, the first 
the first part of it to me, the most beautiful part of it was how much the three of us were so open with each other and leaned on each other. Like I would be like, man, I might have a panic attack in the middle of this thing. Here's what, what do we have a code word? Like, what do we do if I have a panic attack in the middle of this thing? Flugelhorn. You know? Flugelhorn. Flugelhorn. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Pineapple. So, so it was just, we just leaned on each other a lot and, and, you know, through the whole process, that to me was the most beautiful part. The music is incredible. But, you know, I think the little magic thing that shines through that music, the, the X factor that you cannot put your finger on about it is we fucking love each other. This is not somebody went, you're cool, you're cool, you're cool. Why don't y'all get together and see what happens? Like this happened because we were all three going through a bunch of really tough shit following our hearts and it brought us together it's like it gives me chills talking about it so it's it's that that beginning part and now the part where we're like so fiercely um safeguarding it trying to make sure that whenever we get together we have fun so that it's not it doesn't become like this big thing that we're supposed to do yeah this is why this is why i appreciate the chattahoochee's and why I hope that there is a lot of success coming your way because it is so organic. And like you said, it's just you three folks that love each other, that enjoy being around each other, that enjoy writing with each other. And it just happened. And I just don't think that happens very often, if at all, uh, in the music industry. Like it's so rare to see something like that blossom, especially at the pace at which you're doing it, that I want so much for you three here. I want it to work oh. so bad. <laughs> oh, thank you for rooting for us. I can hear that. I can see that on your face and hear that in your voice, that sincerity. Like, I really feel that. Thank you so much for those well, I, well wishes. I appreciate all three of you too. Like I've known Nelly. Well, I guess I've known you musically the longest because of the side one dummy days, but I've known uh, Nelly on a more personal level a little bit longer than you. I don't know much about summer, but I know how hard she's been working in Nashville because I see her name on so many different things. So I just, I just know that the three of you have such a long history. I know that, as you said, you've all been through some shit over the years that I just, I, I'm just so friggin' excited about this for you guys. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Well, you're gonna have fun talking to Summer because she is she's very like dry. She's one of the funniest people you'll ever meet. And she's got a lot of stories about coming up before even before anyone would listen to her songs, her working at like the the front desk at like different places and like learning about the music industry from there. It's really interesting. Do you have any dirt that I can use like to bring up during the conversation? I got a pen here. I'm ready to write. Like what? A, oh, dirt with summer. Yeah. Oh and, and anything good that I can say, be like, Hey, so summer. And she'll be like, how the hell did you know that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I would never, I could never, I could never, no, I would never. But you know what? I will say, uh, she said something one time that I thought was so funny. Cause you know, her dad's a songwriter. Yes incredible iconic legend right and she was talking about someone asked her a question in an interview about like what is your number one goal um you know are you trying to are you trying to like you know something like reach your dad or like some dumb thing and she goes oh my only my only objective is to completely ruin his reputation like I <laughs> That's awesome. I'm going to have to bring so, that up in some way. If you bring, yeah, that might be a way that I could give you a hint without betraying the woman. But yeah, she's got a, she's wonderful. Summer, watching both of them deal with people around at a show, like Nelly is so freaking fierce, man. Like I would, I just would not fuck with these women if I was anybody. <laughs> I would have. Nelly can walk up to anybody and ask them any question and they will. I mean, she can just bring you in and be like, hi, and get it done. Watching Summer with like fans after the shows, like, like I've seen her at a couple of rounds where there were little kids there, like little kids are so drawn to Summer. And then she'll, she'll say hi to them. And it's like, she turns into like a Disney princess or something. <laughs> She's like, hello, you look so beautiful today. And I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> like, beautiful. I don't know how I lucked out. I'm the luckiest bitch in Nashville because I get to be in a band with these two who everything I'm not good at they are great at well I don't know I don't feel 
I'm like, we got this. I don't, I don't know if I should tell you this, uh, but I will say from Nellie's perspective, she feels the same way about feeling very lucky to work with you. I, I know when we talked, she was like, I honestly was so intimidated to have Audra like write music with me. Like, so I will tell you the feeling is mutual around the way that everybody feels very lucky to be a part of this group. Nellie's such a ninja. Like you would never know. You'll never know ever. Never, if Nellie's intimidated, ever. <laughs> she is, I mean, I call her Clint Eastwood. She is the most, like, I don't know, she's like an eagle or something. The way she can, like, zero in and focus. Summer and I are always goofing around, and Nellie's like, I will laugh about that later. Um, Right now, do you want to, like, finish this pre-chorus? Or <laughs> it's like, She does kind of have this look off. in her eyes where, like, you you want to you just want to keep telling her things like you don't feel like you can it's almost, it's almost like a mom thing where like the mo your mom will say to you like did you eat the cookies and you're like no i mean i had four i mean no i ate them all and you just keep going and digging your i feel yeah. like nelly kind of has that same way where you just want to keep telling her stuff yeah she can smile and nod and not say anything and you're like and then i right. forgot to the back what do you want me to say well i'm so excited to talk to all three of you together even though i think it's going to be a disaster on zoom i think it's going to be a lot of fun um but <laughs> <laughs> but well, it's been we could, three, we could all three get in the same place and then it won't be so bad that'll be that'll be much better if we can pull that off um uh, but uh i do I, I really appreciate your time audra it's just it's so nice to get a chance to talk to you i'm pretty sure i saw you on the revival tour but you know you know how those shows work there's not always tickets uh sometimes it's guest list or like a hand stamp when you pay at the door or whatever it is um so i i don't have a record of it but uh i'm excited to I don't know, to watch more of this Chattahoochee stuff. And I just, I love the fact that you guys are all working together. And thank you for giving me some of your time today. Hey, man, thanks for listening to my tangents. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I feel, I, I love hearing people that love music, that have been through music, talk about music. I just, I think it's great. Me too. Well, congrats on your podcast too. Oh, thanks. Thanks. It's been fun. I, I'm excited to share this particular version of it with the world. I think it'll be fun to give people an inner look at the Chattahoochee's and uh, have this conversation. <laughs> yeah, hopefully people won't be like, Chatter, who gives a fuck? Like, who cares? <laughs> like, I don't know who these bitches are or what? I've got a Nobody feeling cares. that if they listen to these, if they haven't already loved you from the music, if they listen to these conversations, they'll walk away going, God damn, I got to listen to those girls. Like, that's Yeah, amazing. who the hell <laughs> Yeah. Yes, we are. We are unhinged. I love it. I love every second of it. Audra, thank you so much. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks, man. Big thank you to Audra May for her time today. I just loved catching up with her and learning more about her. I've been a fan for so many years. This was part two of my four-part series with the Chattahoochees. Next up is a conversation with Summer Overstreet. Until next week, thank you as always for listening to Adult Education and be well.